Welcome to Making and Breaking Social Policy. This is, of course, a podcast about social issues and policy and what it means for social and community practice. My name is Ben Lohmeyer, and I'm a lecturer and researcher here in social work at Flinders University. This is a special episode, and it's all about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Oyster Parliament. As part of its role as a civic institution, Flinders Uni has been actively facilitating debate through an education and awareness-raising program all about the voice. So quoting from the Flinders website, Flinders University acknowledges as a nation that we are at a watershed moment with the call for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament to be enshrined in the Australian constitution. Emanating from the Uluru Statement, a voice to parliament is one of three key aspirational elements of reform intended to represent a unified position for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. End quote. So this episode is a republishing of a Voice to Parliament event organised by the Office for Indigenous Strategy and Engagement here at Flinders Uni. After this intro, I'll disappear for the episode and you will hear instead from the expert panel who will discuss what the Voice to Parliament is and the important issues and debates. The panel will be properly introduced in the recording, but just quickly includes Dwayne Coulthard, member of the Uluru Dialogues from here in South Australia, Dr. Rob Manwaring, Associate Professor of Politics and Policy, Dr. Rowan Nicholson, Lecturer in Law, Dr. Jessica Ganua, Senior Lecturer in International Relations. Thank you for to Flinders Uni and the Office for Indigenous Strategy and Engagement for allowing me to republish this event. The recording has been edited very slightly in the end just to remove the Q&A, so it ends a little bit abruptly. If you want to know more, though, about these events or other resources on The Voice, head to the Office for Indigenous Strategy and Engagement page on the Flinders Uni website, and there, of course, will be links in the show notes. So good afternoon, everyone. I'm just checking that you all can hear me. And welcome to those online as well. So thank you for attending this afternoon's session on um, the Voice to Parliament. My name is Simone Walalgatur. I'm the Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous at Flinders University. I'm a young Gunjada woman from the northwest of South Australia. I'd like to, before we formally begin um, our panel session this afternoon, is to acknowledge that we are meeting on the lands of the Kaurna Nation. I'd like to acknowledge Gunayata um, and in particular our in-retirement elder Uncle Lewis Yulaburka O'Brien, but also Mickey O'Brien, who's also been playing a really key role with Flinders University as a senior Ghana man as well. But I'd also like to acknowledge all our elders on campus and hope that we have people coming in from Northern Territory and also rural and remote South Australia. But I thought it was also important to do a broader acknowledgement. So I'd like to acknowledge all traditional owners and the custodians of the lands on which our campuses are located. And these are the traditional lands of the Arunda, Dagamon, First Nations of the Southeast, First Peoples of the River Murray and Mallee region, Jarwin, Ghana, Larrakir, Ngadjeri, Ngaranjeri, Ramanjeri, Waramungo, Waterman and Yungo people. And we honour all Elders past, present and emerging. So I had the great privilege of being able to emcee today's event. Um, I'd like to thank you all for attending the first of a number of information sessions that will be run on the Voice to Parliament. And I'd like to thank the College of Business, Government and Law and also my office for putting this session together this afternoon. As a nation, um, it's a pivotal moment for Australia. 
as we will be going to a national referendum in relation to recognition through an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. And that is about constitutional reform within, um, for our nation. As you may be aware, the university has committed to an educational and raising awareness campaign as part of our civic responsibility to actually relay the information about the details of what the national referendum means. And I'd just like to briefly read some sections of the university's statement. So Flinders University acknowledges as a nation that we're at a watershed moment with the call of an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament to be enshrined in the Australian constitution. Emanating from the Uluru Statement of the Heart, a voice to parliament is one of three key aspirational elements of reforms intended to represent a unified position for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. As an institution of higher learning and scholarship, we recognise that we do have a key role in leading fearless conversations on the principle for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice within the Australian constitution through a national referendum. We're committed to freedom of speech, grounded in the values of integrity and courage. And with this intent, we acknowledge that there will be differing opinions on the national referendum. And therefore, we support dynamic and full-spirited perspectives, but grounded within a respectful and safe environment. The call for a voice to parliament is also an opportunity to enhance cultural learning and further support for the vision of the university's Innovate Reconciliation Action Plan in building understanding and acceptance of our shared histories as we work towards a shared future. The university envisions that this is historic, is a historic call, is an opportunity for allyship and self-learning as an individual and as a university community. And as mentioned before, as part of this process, we will be rolling out an educational campaign. And I will talk a bit more to that a bit later. So this is one of two internal sessions that we are offering university-wide in relation to the voice to parliament. I do need to acknowledge BGL, who has run previous sessions already um, in relation to this within their own college, which was... Um, a really informative session for both myself as well, as someone who doesn't have a legal background. So in that sense, it was very useful. Uh, so I have the great privilege also of um, introducing the panel members um, this afternoon. So we do have one of our panel members who is on screen at the moment, screening in from Port Augusta. Um, so I'd like to introduce Dwayne Coulthard, member of the Uluru Dialogue essay, um, who will be sharing his perspective today. Welcome, Wei, Dwayne. <laughs> I'd also like to introduce, um, and I'll then ask the other panellists to come to the front of, um, of the lectern. Um, I'd like to introduce um, Dr. Rob Manwaring, um, who's an Associate Professor in Politics and Policy in Business Government Law, thank you. Uh, also, Dr. Jessica, sorry, Jessica, I've got to make Ganawa, um, who's a senior lecturer in international relations, and also Dr. Rowan Nicholson, um, who's a lecturer in law and will talk to legal aspects. So, if you could please make our panelists welcome as I ask them to come to the front of the lectern.
the structure of this panel um, this afternoon will, that will be that our panellists will have an opportunity to actually um, provide some perspectives um, in relation to the voice to parliament. And then once we have um, each of the panellists' um, perspectives and words, we will then have the opportunity to have questions both within the audience and online. You will, for those of you in the room, you will see Anna at the back who will have a microphone um, who will come to you as you ask your questions. When you do that, could you please state your name and what um, area of the university you're actually from and similarly we will take questions online. So I will hand it over to our panellists. Thank you. Oh, great. Uh, good afternoon everyone and thank you for the welcome. So I'm Rob and I uh, teach politics and public policy. Just before I kind of start, I have six minutes uh, and Jessica will glare at me if I go over my six minutes. One of the reasons I'm doing this is I particularly want to talk and have conversations and take questions for people who don't know a lot about this. And I think it should be a safe space where we can kind of ask questions and try and talk about what the kind of the issues and themes. So my, my kind of part of the talk is just to talk about the political dimensions about the voice to parliament. So what is the voice? Uh, the voice has four main elements. So it's a referendum that will be put to the uh, Australian people, those who are eligible to vote, Australian citizens, and it's a compulsory vote. And it's a vote, it's a referendum. And what does it do? It's a proposal to modify the Australian constitution. And then it has a number of linked elements. The first of these is that uh, it would recognize the First Nations people within the constitution, which it currently doesn't do. But then, crucially, it would empower the parliament that is the kind of key decision-making body in our political system, to create a body called The Voice, which is a representative body, an advisory body, comprising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, kind of leaders. So there's four main elements. It's about uh, your referendum will be a yes-no question. You'll, you'll be, we're voting to change the Australian constitution, and Ryan's going to talk about that. It's about recognition and then about creating this body called The Voice. This is the question which some of you might have seen already, and it's a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this proposed alteration? The date for the referendum has not yet been set, but most of the speculation has it is probably going to be in mid-October. We think uh, the 14th of October has been the date that's been suggested, but it's not been kind of confirmed yet. Um, just a little bit of context, like where did this come from? So this is particularly for people in the audience or listening online who don't know much about this, is that this, uh, this referendum has been a long time in the making. And there's a kind of a, been a long-standing sets of debates about how do we take forward kind of reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in Australia for quite a while. And probably the starting point or a recent starting gun was actually the referendum in 1999 on the Republic. And it was then a proposal by John Howard, who was Prime Minister, to insert a clause about recognition of uh, First Nations people that in one sense uh, has given... Um, 
license for this kind of debate to pull out. And so you can see, I'm not going to go through all the dates, a number of key landmarks and milestones within there. Most recently, it was Malcolm Turnbull who set up the referendum kind of council, which led to the Uluru Statement uh, from the Heart, which uh, Dwayne is going to talk about, and the kind of the, the three main elements of the Uluru Statement. And it was then the decision by Malcolm Turnbull to reject a proposal for a constitutionally enshrined uh, voice. And then since then, uh, Anthony Albanese and the Labour government uh, won office in 2022, and one of their first pledges was to hold the referendum. So the point being that this has been uh, going on. So let me just say a couple of uh, political dimensions around this, a little bit about polling, and then a little bit where the political parties are, and we can take this there. For those of you who are following the debate in the media, you'll see that we take, there's been regular polls taken around support or not support for the voice proposal. And over time, there seems to be a softening of support for the yes uh, campaign and a sort of hardening of kind of uh, support for the no campaign in terms of this. And then Ryan's going to talk about the, um, the threshold that needs to happen for the Constitution to pass. So this is, the, the, we have to take care with the polling for a number of reasons, partly because the question's changed and partly what it's also asking. This is a, a polling data which excludes don't knows. So if you include people who don't know what their response will be, there is still a relatively significant proportion, I think, of the Australian voting public, somewhere in that 10 to 15%, who don't know what they're going to do. Similarly, I think there's a significant minority of people who've indicated yes or no who might be described as soft voters. They're kind of... Maybe they're no, but where they're not quite sure, or maybe they're yes, but they're not sure. The point is that I think there is still a lot to play for in terms of what the final outcome will be, in terms of what the polling tells us. If we break it down by different areas, we can see that there's different levels of support in different states uh, across there. Victoria and South Australia are probably uh, leading in terms of uh, where overall support is, but no single state at the moment seems to have a clear overall majority in support for the Yes campaign. We can also see this by partisanship. So groups of voters, so if you vote, if you uh, identify with the Labour Party or if you identify with the Liberal Party or the Nationals, then those groups of voters, uh, when we, from polling, tells us that they have fairly settled or strong opinions about that, what they're going to do. Greens voters are those most in favour of this. And then similarly, I think what was interesting, which I was looking at this morning, was age demographics. So in one sense, where the referendum battle will be won and lost will be particularly, I think, around older groups, uh, older kind of population. Younger people, uh, 18 to 34, alas, even though I would look it, I'm not in that age category. Um, younger people are pretty much as steadfastly in favour of the kind of yes, yes vote. So there's some disaggregation. A couple other kind of polls worth pointing out is often one of the, the issues that flagged is about are there divisions amongst uh, Indigenous or First Nations people around this. So there's been two polls this year with different sample sizes and the polling of Indigenous Australians seems to show an overwhelming majority of Indigenous First Nations people support the Yes Canada campaign. So the most recent one in March, which had a much larger sample, which given the population is just 3% of the overall uh, country, that tells us something quite strong about uh, Indigenous support for us. There are issues around with polls. We need to take care with them, um, particularly around sampling things. I can talk about that in questions. 
My final slide and the last thing I really wanted to say is just give some mapping about the political parties. So we organise our politics in Australia through our parties and our allegiances and support for voting for political parties. Where do the major parties sit, if you didn't kind of get a sense of this? Well, the ALP are strongly in favour, of course, for the Yes campaign. This is their proposal. This is the referendum that Anthony Albanese's government has put to the people. And so the ALP are formally endorsing the campaign. The Liberals, it's been much more of a, a vexed issue uh, for the party. So their formal position is no to a constitutionally enshrined voice. But yes, uh, they are uh, in favour of constitutional recognition, uh, perhaps a preamble in the constitution, but regional bodies. So again, uh, Liberal uh, ministers or shadow ministers talking this week on the radio were endorsing they would prefer to see much more localised consultation. However, there are divisions uh, within the Liberal Party. There's a group of Liberals for the voice, uh, and there was a question about whether it was going to be a conscience vote. And then I actually wrote to Simon Birmingham last week to try and get clarification around his position, which I think is really quite sort of vexed and tortured about what, where he stands on this. Um, which we can kind of talk about. The point I want to flag is within the Liberal Party in particular, there are kind of clear divisions. Um, uh, there is not a settled position around uh, the, the view to the voice. The Greens will formally support it. Uh, former Greens member Lydia Thorpe, of course, actually quit the party over the, par the, the uh, party's position. And for her, um, as I understand her position, it's about advocating for what she calls black sovereignty, that this is a tokenistic kind of body. It won't make practical difference to the lives, and we need other kind of mechanisms. And then lastly, uh, you have the Nationals Party as part of the coalition, who came out very early, even before the wording came out, to oppose uh, the uh, referendum. So they're firmly in the no camp, although there is some splits within the Nationals around David Littleproud's position. Anthony G was in favour, and Jacinta Price who sits, uh, is by member of the country Liberal Party, but sits with the Nationals in the federal parliament, is also one of the leading uh, opponents of The Voice. So that gives you a sense about where the parties sit, where the polling is, and about where, where, how this kind of might play out, which, of course, happy to take some questions. All right, so now I will hand over to colleagues. Thank you, and excuse me for a minute while I swap the slides over. Uh, so my name is Dr. Rowan Nicholson. I lecture in law, in particular in constitutional law and international law. Uh, I'm going to focus on some of the legal aspects of this proposal. In some ways, it's a fairly modest proposal. The Constitution is the basic document for our legal and political system, and the referendum is a vote to insert just three additional provisions into the Constitution. So I'll show you the wording of those provisions and talk about the legal effect of each of them. Here's the first. In recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. What is the significance of putting this fairly simple statement into the Constitution? Well, it's not necessary. Parliament, if it wished, could simply legislate in the ordinary way to create an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Our South Australian Parliament at state level has already done that. There are advantages and disadvantages to inserting this into the Constitution, as distinct from putting it in an ordinary law. The advantage is that when we put something in the Constitution, it stays there. 
This is a decision by the Australian people as a whole, a higher legal authority than Parliament. If we decide as citizens to put this in our constitution, a future Australian government cannot dismantle it. That matters in practical terms because historically over the last several decades, Indigenous representative bodies have been repeatedly created, dismantled, recreated, re-dismantled, depending on which government is in power. So the point here is to create something that will be a permanent feature of Australian public life. That's the advantage. What's the disadvantage? It's really difficult to amend the Constitution. Uh, we vote as a country. We've only done this 44 times since Federation, since 1901, and of those 44 referendums, only eight have succeeded. There are lots of political reasons for that, that we can't get into. Uh, but one simple reason is that we have what's called a double majority requirement that is intended to make it complex and difficult to amend the Constitution to ensure that there is broad-based support for change. A double majority. First, a majority of all Australians voting nationwide. Second, a majority in at least four of the six states, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, Western Australia. We saw on Rob's slides that support for the voice varies among the states. So that might make a difference in a referendum like this. It is technically possible to get a yes vote nationwide, but then to get a no vote in say, WA, Queensland and Tasmania, resulting in failure of the referendum. Here's the next new provision. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Uh, a couple of issues here. May make representations. May make representations. That is not a lawmaking power. Uh, some opponents of the voice have described it as a third chamber of parliament. Legally, that analogy is inaccurate. Parliament makes laws. It passes legislation. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice will have no power to make law. The only power it will have is to give advice. And it will then be up to the parliament to decide or not to decide whether to accept that advice. A more accurate analogy would be to bodies like the Law Reform Commission, the Productivity Commission, the Human Rights Commission. Each of these bodies gives advice to Parliament about legislation, and Parliament may or may not listen to that advice. When a bill is drafted in Parliament, there will be a long document in which the proposed law is assessed against various things such as its environmental impact, its impact on human rights. This will simply be an addition to that process. It will slot in neatly to the existing way we make laws in Australia without fundamentally changing that or without diminishing the power of parliament. Uh, a second issue. Some commentators have worried that the voice will introduce a kind of legal inequality between peoples or races. Legally, this also does not uh, make much sense. The voice is not about race as such. 
It is about indigeneity. Indigeneity is a legal concept. In international law, an indigenous people generally means a people who have been dispossessed by settler colonialism, who have become a minority in their own original country through the process of colonialism, like Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders, like Native Americans, for example, like Maori people in New Zealand. Indigenous peoples have certain rights in international law, in particular something called the right to self-determination, the right to have a say, a degree of influence over their own affairs. Now, why would we treat Indigenous people differently from other peoples? Because their distinctive historical experience puts them in a different legal position. In Australia, we have a variety of laws and government programs that affect Indigenous Australians in particular. For example, Indigenous Australians are the only people who have native title, where native title is a kind of property right that predates colonisation. No one else was here before colonisation. No one else is affected in that way by that body of law. Similarly, we have Indigenous heritage laws and a variety of other laws and programs. One of the principles underlying Indigenous self-determination in general or the voice in particular, is that if a group of people is affected by a particular law or a particular part of the legal system, they should have a particular say or a particular influence over how those laws are made. So this is only true in Australia of Indigenous people. We do not, for example, have special laws about Irish Australians. So it is only in this particular case that it makes sense to establish this kind of institution, and far from creating a legal divide, this recognises existing legal inequality and tries to address that. Uh, the third and last provision. The parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice including its composition, functions, powers, and procedures. What does this mean? Well, I have now read out the totality of the proposed amendments to the Constitution. Those are all the extra words that we are putting in there. And the idea here is that all of the remaining details will be left to Parliament to decide later. What will those details be? We have some indication from the government. The government has released papers on this, but that is all subject to change. This fits with how the Constitution ordinarily works. The Constitution establishes the basic framework for our society, for our political and legal system. It is bare bones. So here's another example. The Constitution says Parliament must be directly chosen by the people, and it has a few other provisions on specific aspects of our democracy. But that phrase, directly chosen by the people, pretty much carries with it the entirety of our democratic system. All the details of how voting works, uh, of how electoral boundaries are determined, of above the line and below the line voting, all of those details 
are in ordinary legislation in the Electoral Act. That is the normal division of labour between the Constitution setting the overall framework and ordinary legislation that gives us the details. Why is that useful? Because it means we can adapt, we can experiment. We have amended that electoral system hundreds of times as our conception of democracy has evolved, as we have expanded the franchise uh, to women and minorities, for example, uh, as technology has changed, as our understanding um, of decision-making has evolved. It will be the same with the voice. Parliament will experiment, it will adapt, but the institution will remain in the Constitution in some form. So this too, I think, uh, makes legal sense and, and fits in neatly with how our system ordinarily operates. Um, this is an overview of the, the legal issues. Perhaps we'll pick up more on some of these uh, in questions, but I think now I, I hand over to you, Duane, uh, to share your perspective. Thank you, Rowan. Uh, and also thank you to Simone for that uh, acknowledgement of country. Uh, very important to start off the event, you know, doing what we've always done as First Nations people, which is uh, acknowledge uh, the country we're meeting on and seek permission. So um, I would like to acknowledge that I'm on the land of the Bangla people here in Port Augusta, a very important place for First Nations people of South Australia when I think about the fact that this is the cross country, this, this the country to get out to wherever you're going. So um, acknowledge that and also acknowledge the fact that it plays a very important part in my family history, um, uh, having, you know, um, my grandmother grow up here in Port Augusta. So acknowledge that. Um, but also just I wanted to reiterate uh, from my perspective as somebody who is a proud signatory to the Uluru Statement from the heart to remind people that, you know, we, we do have a lot of politicians talking about this issue, talking about the voice, but we must remember and must remain committed to the fact that this is something that came from the Uluru Statement, came from the most exhaustive, deliberative uh, dialogue consultation process with First Nations people. Uh, this was something that was historic. So I wanted to remind people that, you know, at the end of the day, we have a lot of politicians and, you know, uh, um, important influential people talking about this, but at the end of the day, this came from the grassroots level. Um, I was a part of the Adelaide Regional Dialogue, so I was helping facilitate the conversation with the South Australian Aboriginal community about the options for reform. Uh, and I remember this wasn't an easy conversation to have. This was actually quite intense. Uh, we did get growled. We did get, um, um, you know, it did get emotional. It did uh, get very heated. But at the end of the day, what was um, what the message I got from that, from the elders and from everybody who was involved in the Adelaide Regional Dialogue was change um, is required. Um, and the change that we need has to go to the heart of our country, and that is the Constitution the founding legal document. So we understand its importance and we also understand the fact that history tells us that, you know, we've been shoved aside in the past. So we definitely wanted to put a put a line in the sand um, and change the status quo. You know, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is a representative and advisory body, uh, like Rob so eloquently uh, discussed. And as Rowan was talking about the legal aspects, at the end of the day, this is going to be a, a, we do have to go to a referendum to in, enshrine the voice within the constitution. 
But that's required because we know that, you know, in the end of the day, there is work to be done. Whether there is a yes or a no, um, the results, obviously, I want to I see a big yes vote um, for the First Nations voice to Parliament. But at the end of the day, next year, the job's going to be still, the work needs to still be done. So, you know, at the end of the day, there is work to be done and we're going to be continuing to roll up our sleeves and continue to, I guess, make the impact that we want to see. Um, and I also wanted to touch upon on the guiding principles. There was 10 guiding principles that was distilled from the regional dialogues, those 12 regional dialogues that they had right around the country, 100 uh, First Nations participants from each regional dialogue attended. So that's 1,200 people, uh, 1,200 First Nations people who have contributed to this consultation process that ended up to, uh, with the Uluru Statement from the heart. Um, but that, that, uh, those guiding principles were, one, number one, it does not dis diminish Aboriginal sovereignty and Torres Strait Islander sovereignty. Number two, it involves substantive structural reform. Number three, uh, advances self-determination and the standards established under the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Four, recognises the status and rights of First Nations. Uh, five, tells the truth of history. Six, does not foreclose on future advancement Seven, does not have the opportunity for reform. Eight, provides a mechanism for First Nation agreement making. Nine, has the support of First Nations. And ten, does not interfere with positive legal arrangements. So those were the prints pinned uh, the Uluru Statement and the call for voice, treaty and truth. So this wasn't something that we pulled out the hat. This was something that we thought quite seriously about. Um, and understand that, you know, now we're at the precipice of history. History is calling. We're helping people get engaged. I hope many of the audience members have, have heard about the Uluru Statement, hopefully. I've read it. Um, there is, you know, a lot of mis misinformation currently going out um, in the community about what the voice is, uh, where the voice comes from, a lot of stuff about the Uluru Statement that is just simply uh, untrue. Um, so I encourage people to, to do a little bit of research as well. This is just the tip of the iceberg, but we need people to be actively engaged. Um, so I encourage you to, to spread the message about these um, information sessions and uh, hopefully I'll be joining you in person um, at the next one. But definitely it's something that we need people to be really, really engaged in uh, and know that, you know, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people having a role to play in the way our country is run, um, creating space for First Nations people. So I think that's very, very, very important, and it's going to be a, a long journey. But we're not going to we're not going to quit. So I um, I just wanted to reiterate that for my for my spiel. So I'll, I think now's the time for some questions. I'm happy to be taking some questions. Thanks, Dwayne. And um, I'll just briefly outline, I mean, we're coming to the end of the kind of presentation part of our session because we're definitely very interested to take questions from everyone in the room and also just engage in a bit of a discussion and answer the kinds of things that all of you might be interested in. So I'll just briefly outline some of the key points I'm sure that many of you have been kind of following the different issues and debate that's kind of already been raised around the voice to parliament. And I won't dwell on these 
too much because really I think it's things that we can also bring out in discussion and we're happy for all of you to kind of engage further with any of these questions that you might also have. But I guess a key point that's sort of been suggested is, you know, and Rowan kind of touched on this as well, does an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament, this kind of advisory body is actually creating kind of racial divisions within our society. And as Rowan already mentioned, I guess sort of the response to that is that it's really, it's more about indigeneity rather than racial, you know, um, differences, but also that within Australian society, holding a referendum on a voice to parliament in 2023 didn't create racial differences in Australian society. And that's something that's been very much sort of embedded since white people have come to Australia and there have been clauses in the constitution previously around race powers, for example, that were removed in the late 1960s. We can sort of discuss those issues more in Q&A if people are interested. Is it important to actually amend the constitution? Rowan also mentioned this. There's one position that says, well, that's unnecessary and might not guarantee substantive change. But on the other hand, embedding in the constitution actually ensures that such a body cannot be retracted in future and will have longevity and be institutionally embedded. How will it actually work? On the one hand, there's a position saying, well, not enough detail has been provided. On the other hand, the point of embedding kind of a broad principle in a constitution is not so much to provide specific detail at this point, but it's to ensure that that kind of principle is enshrined and then those details can be worked out later by political bodies. Um, some members, you know, some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, some mem members of our Indigenous community have expressed various different opinions on the voice to Parliament, some being in favour, some being opposed. Um, however, as Rob mentioned, polling that's taken place has shown sort of between 80 to 85% overall support amongst First Nations people in Australia for the voice to Parliament. And like any political issue that comes up or any issue that comes up at all, there's always going to be some kind of diversity of opinion, even if it's like a minority on one side and by far a majority on the other side, there's always going to be a bit of diversity that's just human. Um, and then I guess a question that's often raised is, does this actually go far enough? Like, should we actually be seeking something more like a treaty as opposed to an advisory body? Um, but then on the other hand, the position would be that, well, this can be sort of a step forward in a direction towards reconciliation, even if it's obviously just one step on that path, not the whole way there. So I think now we'll throw over to all of you. Happy for your questions, comments, um, anything that you would like to hear more about or any questions at all that you might have about the Voice to Parliament. This episode was edited by Ryan Manhire, music by Anthem of Rain, sourced from the freemusicarchive.org. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter, at Ben. If you like the podcast, please like, share, comment, and do all the things. <laughs>